Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Mark Andreessen from A16Z famously proclaimed a decade ago that software is eating the world. His prophecy has proved prescient. Cloud computing enabled the rapid, cost-effective deployment of software, startups flourished, and venture capital returns have been phenomenal. Venture capital is a fascinating investment area whose many days in the sun shine brightest this year. Institutional portfolios with large venture allocations soared to their best year in history. And yet, parts of venture are unique in being both efficient and unactionable. Many believe that Sequoia or Benchmark will produce returns at the top of the pack, 
but there's not much action anyone can take to participate. This miniseries explores the industry, focusing on some favorites of institutional investors who are still investable to those in the loop. Each has a great differentiated story to share and something to prove. That said, this field moves quickly, so as the disclaimer goes, past accessibility is not a guarantee of future capacity. My guest on the 10th episode of Ventures Eating the Investment World is Arjun Sethi, the co-founder and CEO of Tribe Capital, a $1.3 billion venture capital fund built by engineers and scientists to focus on using product and data science to engineer N-of-one companies and investments. Arjun was an entrepreneur who founded and sold two businesses and became an active angel investor before turning to venture capital. Our conversation covers Arjun's upbringings in an immigrant family, his early endeavors as an entrepreneur, success as an angel investor, and different way of looking at venture investing. We then turn to his experience implementing his hypothesis at Social Capital and at Tribe, including using data science to identify product growth, qualitative factors, decision-making, and working with portfolio companies. Ventures Eating the Investment World is brought to you by Omni. Omni helps private capital investors track and analyze individual deals while providing comprehensive financial and legal insights across their portfolio. It houses the largest database of investment transactions in the private markets extracted directly from executed agreements, including the legal terms, co-investor details, liquidity preferences, valuations, and round sizes. With that information, investors can make faster investment decisions, benchmark deal terms, understand market trends, and enhance portfolio analytics. Omni's clients include leading venture funds, corporate venture groups, family offices, and endowments, including a number of past guests on the show. You can learn more at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Please enjoy my conversation with Arjun Sethi in the 10th episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World. Arjun, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Ted. I guess a good place to start might be to go through your entrepreneurial journey. So I was born and raised in California, Santa Clara, and people used to joke that I was just a product of Silicon Valley. My dad was in the startup ecosystem. My mom was in it as well. They had some fits and starts, some failures. But in the late 90s, my dad started a company called Berkeley Networks. So that was on the networking gigabit switch side. And up until then, we had lived pretty lower middle class. But I grew up with a computer. I was learning how to code. I was being taught it from my elder cousins. My sisters were doing it. My dad was kind of in the thralls of it as well. It just became sort of the natural education. And then I started my own company, sort of, I guess, mimetic desire to kind of copy what I was seeing around me. And it ended up me just building out web pages for folks and getting paid extremely low wages under the minimum wage just because I was a kid. And then I actually got kicked out of high school because of non-attendance, <laughs> probably insecurities trying to be cool. I ended up enlisting in the army around 17 years old. And they have this process of taking these IQ tests is like the ASVAB test. If you pass that, you take the next one, the next one, the next one. I guess luckily passed through all of that. So the, the way in which they think about it is once you go through basic and you've gone through enough of 
uh, the training of what you were specified to do that you signed up for, some of the three-letter agencies come by and then ask if you want to work with them in some way. And so ended up landing with the DIA for a certain period of time and spent my time in the Middle East and a couple of other places at a pretty young age while just contracting and freelancing to build web pages. My entrepreneurial journey just really started with a set of folks that I was freelancing with and got connected with when they started working at, I'm going to say, post-2001 and things started coming back. They went from Yahoo to Google to a couple other places. Then I slowly started following them back and wanting to work with them. Really around 2006 to 2008, you had the global financial crisis, the decline there. While that was happening, everyone was struggling together. So no one could raise capital. Folks were just building, 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 seeing what they can do. So I used to write white papers. I would do anything. I was actually even an EA for an executive who was at a startup company just to make sure that we had exposure and building and coding on the side. The unfortunate part was I was actually pretty poor at building and architecting things. And so I was always zero to one scrappy, but I was never able to get past a certain threshold. So part of it was learning how to build and work with a team and figure out what my strengths and weaknesses were. There was this inflection point where I had contracted with Facebook, I had contracted with MySpace, Google and Orkut, open protocols. There were lots of things happening that I ended up starting a company with a couple of friends of mine that were focused on the Facebook platform when it first came out. And that was a company called Rolling on the Floor Laughing. And there was a similar company called LOL Apps, so Laughing Out Loud applications. And they were focused on distribution of these gifts and quizzes on Facebook, essentially getting hundreds of millions of users very quickly. When I say quickly, the size and the scale of how this happened for us and for them you know, in about a year, I think we went from zero to over 100 million in monthly active uniques for these apps. So what that forced you to do was build data teams, infrastructure teams, and a quantitative approach towards making sure that your products stay in the hands of customers as long as possible. The goal was, how can we take these distribution models and build longer term applications? And then a way to do it also was to pool our resources together. So this company called Lolaps and my company called Raffle Play, while we were building all these apps, we merged. I ended up starting to work on product. And then we just sprinted in building out the company, went from zero to a couple hundred people. We eventually sold the company in 2011. We had built out a framework to, and you'll see the similar theme. It was a quantitative approach to making sure that when we built a game with distribution, we could measure the half-life of how long it would last, and you could see what the CAC to LTV could look like. We would have a predictive nature on the way in which people would interact in the first one, five, and ten days of how much they would spend over their lifetime, and that's how much spend we would put against it. So to kind of give you a scale, we would spend upwards of 50 to $60 million a month in advertising across mobile and social platforms. We had to be very, very good at measuring it because if you didn't, you would just fail. And one company that sort of recognized this and knew that and had similar characteristics, but they had larger top of the funnel was a company called Nexon. So they did a majority buyout of us in 2011. That was the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. Like that, I was thrown into the hot seat. Curious to ask you these two kind of early influences. You mentioned your parents were entrepreneurs and then later you're in the army. You can imagine two different sets of lessons from those two environments. I'm curious what you what you see as the streams that you took through those in your work. I'm Indian American. So my dad came in the 50s and 60s and my mom came during the late 70s. I just watched them struggle from 
like an extremely early age that kids early. I don't think my dad like felt any sort of extreme racism, but it always said I got passed up and I could do a better job than my boss. And the reason my boss got promoted is that from his skin or his color, or he's part of some sort of club. And I didn't witness that. I wasn't a part of that. So I, I don't know. But that was ingrained in my mind that in order for you to succeed, you had to focus on education. You had to focus on making sure you continue to work hard. So the stream of consciousness at home always was work as hard as possible. Now, you would typically someone in the story would say, then I end up working hard. I didn't. I failed everything I did. <laughs> I failed school. I had like a 1.0 GPA. I would barely attend. I was focused on the things kids focus on, friends, being a part of the ecosystem, sort of being cool. Just the experience, maybe the pre-college experiences in high school. And so I didn't go to college right off the bat. I went to the military. And then, and then for the military, I worked my way back into college. And I went to University of Maryland, College Park, and, and studied math and history there. And the reason I kind of skip education is that it's not a huge part of my learning experience. I went there for the stamp. I didn't go there because I felt like I was going to learn an extreme amount of skill sets. That said, I learned some stuff about history and, and math I was already kind of up to speed on. So it, it was there just to get the stamp. From the military side, because I enlisted in the army, but I didn't stay and I went to contract with the agencies, part of the program was that you would go to the base, you'd be a part of the process, but you also lived on a part of the line where you could break the rules. And so what, what I saw a lot of, I was reading this book called Loon Shots, like many, many, many years later. And I just felt like he had articulated what I had seen. And that was a perspective that I had learned from the military. It wasn't really used in my entrepreneurial career as explicit as you would think. But it might have been used implicitly just by the sheer fact that I was looking at teams being formed, I was looking at camaraderie, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Those lines and those proverbial sayings that people say are true in certain circumstances. So just the act of what team building means and how do you work with multiple teams in order to get an assignment done actually really matters. And I didn't appreciate it as much, but I think I might have implicitly used some of that when I was running a little apps and I was thinking in that way and figuring out how to build teams. You have to figure out a way in which teams can be built for folks that have, frankly, huge egos in the room and you have to figure out how to retrain them. So what was your path after the sale of LOL apps to angel investing first? During LOL apps, we would literally sit around that this is a dog patch area into the mission in San Francisco and basically say, if you help me, I will help you. So give me advisory shares. And then advisory shares turned into angel investments. And angel investments at that time really meant 5K here, 10K here. That's all we really had. I think the most amount of money I had in my bank account, even though I was running a huge operation, was like $16,000. And taking secondary at that time as well was like a huge no-no. Like if you did it, you've committed some sort of sin, especially during the 2008 timeframe. And I think it was really a early and special time because the communities were being formed and people were bonding because we didn't have anything else. You had nothing left to lose. So let's just try as hard as possible and let's support each other. So I did everything anyone else did. If I liked some people, I liked the idea, I just shot the check and you get lucky every once in a while. But I decided to take something else away from it over time is that because I was buying my opportunity to see how these companies were being built, I saw the products that they were building. I saw the culture that they were creating. I looked at that and I said, they're doing it better than me at my own company. So maybe the way I should think about it is that I should actually start reorienting my checks towards folks that I felt were very good at building product, engineering, culture, 
streamlining their operations. And that was the beginning of my angel investing career. I got very, very lucky with a handful of companies. And I also had the same loss ratio that you see typically at the early, early stage angel rounds, which is 80% of the stuff you invest in fails. So after we had sold Lolaps, I started my second company called Message Me, continued to invest in a bunch of these companies. And I sort of had a track record of being the guy or one of the folks in the ecosystem that you would talk to about growth and how to think about growing your products at high velocity, what would be tactics you should use, what you should measure. And one of my investors, Mike Kirschland, who runs a fund called Resolute Ventures, he had been at Polaris previously and was an investor in my company. He basically said, why don't you help me find early stage companies? And, and we didn't use the word scout, but he'd set up a separate entity. And embarrassingly enough, that was like the beginning of what people called Arge Fund, which that would be the name on the cap table. People knew it was me. I was kind of fairly sarcastic, but just very good at what I did. And, and maybe you wanted me around the table. And that was the beginning. So I would write some of my own checks. I would write through him, his vehicle. Eventually, I wrote through a couple of other vehicles, including with Social Capital. Eventually, messaged me, sold to Yahoo. And I just continued to do that as I was building out my growth and data science team. And again, the expertise that I was thinking through and I was providing when I was working with these companies was that I had a growth and data science background and you had to build these teams and I could help them think through that when they raised their first rounds of venture capital. What are those key growth challenges you were able to help companies think through? So it seems basic, but the first thing you needed to do was essentially really figure out what was your North Star. And so if it's users, if it's usage, if it's integration, it's like the number of share count on Facebook. It was something called an object that changed it over time. It was really, how do you build out and substantiate the systems and the metrics from the North Star? That was the beginning. And as common as it sounds, like this is what you need to think through. There's lots of blog posts. People write about this. When you're a founder, sometimes you're a deer in the headlights. You can see it. You can see what people are saying. But just going through the process, seeing the artifact, seeing how that can help you orient your business or your product and how you want to change it. It's a journey in itself. You know, part of why I think you see accelerators and people talk about this is that you have to train yourself to do it because you're going from an irrational passion of building something because you believe it needs to exist to a place of as it's starting to exist, how do you evolve it and form it into something else that might not be your original intention or vision? Why don't you walk through the message me story? When we sold to Nexon, they were based in Korea. And so I just got a lot of exposure to what was happening in Korea what was happening in Japan and Southeast Asia. So the WeChats, the Kakaos, all of these companies that were growing at, again, high velocity. And remember, my background is just continuing to identify growth. How do these products get built so quickly and just trace routing it? And then the smarter thing for me would have been to identify that and invest in them. But the irrational passion on, on my side was that I'm an entrepreneur. I can do it too. I can do it better. And so that's why I built Message Me. Now, Message Me was kind of a struggle. And we got spoiled from our social and mobile gaming days. When we launched a product, we would get instant distribution. We'd get it so fast, and then we would iterate. Message me, that happened in the first week, and then it fell flat. And we were scratching our heads, and we're like, well, we haven't seen this before. What do we do now? So I don't think we had the perseverance and the wherewithal to like, continue to build that. Although we got to, I think at its peak, 15 to 20 million monthly active uniques, it, it got there it still didn't feel big enough. And the reason it didn't feel big enough is that if you were to benchmark all the other messaging apps at the same time, we were at the low end. The interesting aspect there was that, again, we built out our data and our infrastructure. It was very robust because that's what we were trained to do so that we could build products and iterate very quickly. 
And Marissa had started her time at Yahoo and her tenure. And there was a couple other folks that we knew there. And they basically kind of offered us a soft landing, which is like, if you come here, we know what your skill sets are. Why don't you build growth and data science teams? And why don't you build some of these products that we're thinking through at Yahoo? And it felt like, all right, this is the right thing to do, right thing for the team and the company. And it would be the first time some of my co-founders made money in their whole life. So we did that. We had moved to Yahoo. Part of the asset sale and team acquisition, interestingly enough, was that we ended up selling a small portion of our designs and products to Telegram. And so you see a lot of that today. So we're probably one of the only outside shareholders that own parts of Telegram. And then I went to go run the growth data science team with my co-founders at Yahoo. And actually, you know, it was there that I really scaled up thinking about what it meant to invest, actually, because I was running a portfolio of products at Yahoo. Things that were already at scale, things that were subpar that had product market fit, but it might have been growing at a sublinear rate. Some were growing super linear, but how do you identify it? And I read this blog post from an individual at Social Capital named Jonathan Sue, who's my co-founder today. And everything that I had been working on with my team, everything that we had been doing for the last 10 years, he just like articulated it extremely, extremely well. And I said, wow, if I just knew to use this as my base foundation, I could have just made my teams move at a faster pace. This is a natural sort of way I got into Social Capital. What was it that Jonathan said that resonated with how you wanted to run teams? So today we call it a quantitative approach to product market fit. But at the time, he wrote gap accounting for growth for startups, which is what are all the things you need to measure to see at a high level your business and your software metrics on like, are you on the right path? Do people use your product? And taking a very consumer style attitude to any business. And you would look at that and say, you could munch together the frameworks we had and the finances that we're thinking through together and have a very, again, elegant way to get to your goal which is the North Star of a company. What is it that you're trying to build? What is that product trying to do? And that was it. And it's simple in concept. It's just very hard to actually execute on it. We did growth in data science consulting for Snapchat, for Uber, for Airbnb, all these companies. And when I say that, I don't mean it to be facetious. Like we actually sent and built teams for them. We would do multiple offsites with them. We would actually build products on the side for them so that it could help them scale out like their SMS system when Uber first started. Myself and my team, we're a part of all this. And every single time we did it, we started from scratch instead of having a framework to use. So how did you decide to go from Yahoo, where you were sitting, into investing full-time? I'd only learned a couple of ways of investing and, and watching folks. And the traditional path is you're known for being an operator or a founder. And then a typical VC comes to you and says, he or she, hey, why don't you join VC? I think you could be good at it. Then you say, oh, wow, me? I could be good at this? I never, never thought that I would hold you guys in high esteem. There's still this like weird aura that any VC brings to you. And they say, hey, you can join our club. And so in the beginning, that got me excited. And I would visit a lot of these funds, you know, some of these top tier firms that we all know and love. And you would sit in the room and the path of making an investment decision was extremely archaic to me. And so what's the process? Someone meets with a the founder. They write some notes or a quick memo whatever it might be, it's all done in email or like a document format. They send it to the rest of the partnership or they look for a sponsor and then they explain it to everyone, their version of it. And then if it seems interesting enough, some of it is qualitative, some of it is quantitative. They, Of course, people, if they had enough time, they do the work. They look at the data room if there is one, depending on what stage of the company it is. And then they say to the founder, why don't you come in and 
pitch to us like a court jester. Just show us that you have something. <laughs> and then when they leave, then people would bring up every single thing that they could think of qualitatively. Like he didn't take a bath or he looked like he's messed up. Like maybe he does drugs or does she have the wherewithal to like build this company all the way to what it needs to take to be a enduring company for 20 years. Everything that you could think of that had nothing to do with how their business runs or what that team may look like. And then by the time they got to it, I'm being a little extreme here. I felt like everyone had made a decision about that company in that room during the presentation that none of the work was really done on like, is the company even working? And that to me was so foreign. That said, I didn't really comment. And I just like, these guys do what they do. They're very good at it. And so I should do the same. And so Social Capital was the only firm that I had met that had built out a growth and data science team at the time. And so what I give credit to this Rich Moth, he built his team at Facebook this way. And I think his desire was that A16Z had built out their enterprise infrastructure, what they do on the BD side to help with their teams. They built out their portfolio management really, really well, and it was working. It created a unique value proposition in the market. And I think he had a desire to do the same. I don't think we successfully did that, but I think we did successfully market it ahead of what we could do. But we did bring some of the brightest minds around the table. We all were working in the same rooms. We had all worked with each other in some way over the last 15 years in the same ecosystem. That was the reason why I went there. I really went there because I felt like we had the ability to change the game in some way or look at the world with a very different point of view. And that was a chance worth taking versus going to your typical top tier firms that were out there. So what was it that led you eventually to set off on your own with Tribe? So my biggest problem is that I always feel like I can do it better. I think I walked into the organization thinking, what are the pieces that I need to learn so that I could build this myself one day? So there's a little bit of hubris in that, right? Because it's an entrepreneur attitude. But at the same time, my thought process was that it's going to take me 10 years before I start thinking about building something on my own. And I know how hard it is and how long it takes to cultivate the relationships with the LPs, make sure you have a track record. So my goal was that I want to be the biggest badass investor that's out there. And to be able to do that, you need to make good investments and you need to make sure that you have some sort of edge. So I spent all my time in two places at the firm, actually, in the first couple of weeks that I got there. I spent all my time with the finance and back office team because no one spends any time with them. Just understanding what they do, what they build, how they communicate with the LPs, just as a pure learning experience. And the second was the data science team that was there. As I learned more and more about what they were building and the thoughts that they had, how could we productize this? What are ways in which we could automate it? Like it was in my mind, but it didn't mean we could execute on it. And then I started voicing these at the firm and moving in that direction. And then counter to the first investment, I decided to deep dive into areas that not a lot of people were thinking about, where there were more binary chances of success. So I started looking into space and launch products, and maybe I got lucky. There was enough companies that I could start assessing there. And so the first company I ever did was Relativity Space, which ended up, I remember one of my partners, Mamoon, who's at Kleiner Perkins, just gave me really good advice. He said, like, this company, it may or may not work, but if it does work or it doesn't work, it's going to suck a lot of your time. And so you got to be very, very good at, like, this industry just understanding it. And that was probably like some of the best advice I got when I first got there, which is like, if you choose to invest in a certain part of the industry and you don't know enough about it, you better get up to speed very quickly. Also, it takes and sucks a lot of your time, which means that the next deal you might miss. So my goal then was, okay, great. How do I, A, 
get into deeper into some areas that I care about. B, how do I augment my capability to identify something very quickly so I don't miss it? And that was where the data science team came in. That was how I spent most of my time at Social Capital was how do I identify things very quickly that are up and down the middle software and tech-enabled services? And then what are the areas that I want to dive deep into, whatever that might be, year to year? So if you look at both of those as a challenge, so how did you go about trying to figure out in a broad swath of different potential opportunities where you wanted to dive in? I think, truthfully, just taking a bet on anything in space just seemed like it was a statement that like you could do that too. And so, of course, I fell in love with the sector. It's like an extreme part of my focus today. But at the time, it just, I felt like in order for me to have a unique value proposition as a story to tell founders beyond what I've done as a founder myself, because it outdates itself over three, six, 10 months, that just the first investment that I make as a consumer person or software enterprise focus that I had at the time, that the first investment I make is a 3D printing startup that's launching rockets into space. That in itself is a statement, and that's like a huge part of the conversation when you talk to any entrepreneur for any product that you're building, right? Because it, it's naturally curious because it's hard. A rocket scientist at a certain point, if you can get up to speed quickly enough. And now I used to read a lot of stuff that Elon Musk used to talk about, which is first principles. How do you tear something down all the way to its basics and start the process of learning right from there? And I try to do that with space and and it's TBD on if relativity will work, but we did it with a company called Swarm. They ended up selling the SpaceX, and I think we just ended up being very good at taking sniper shots as a team. And it wasn't just me. You know, there's a couple of the folks that decided to join the bandwagon and focus their time and attention there. And so space ended up being sort of the, the passion or the driver around some of my time that I spent there. So when it came time to launch your own firm, how did you take all of your entrepreneurial experiences and your investing experiences and bring them together into what you felt was the approach you wanted to take? The piece that I think most people do is they go out and pitch a fund. And they said, I was working at this other firm, or I might have had this other experience, or it could be India-focused or Africa-focused or diversity and inclusion-focused. And they say, I'm going to do everything the same way. But my focus for this fund is going to be in this sector. And then you go from fund to fund to fund if you are successful. And you're trying to figure out how to build a firm. My whole aspiration, day one, was I wanted to build a technology company. And so a technology company that deploys capital. And how do you do that? What are the first principles approach that you need to take? Like, What do you need to learn as quickly as possible and the, the folks that you need to have around the table? So I took the same lessons from my companies. What are ways in which we had to reinvent the wheel, what are things that we needed to augment. And we internally tend to not view ourselves as an investment firm, but a technology company. That, that's, the, that's the lingo that we speak and that we deploy capital across multiple opportunities across early, mid and late stage equities and crypto. It's a different mindset. And the reason I say that is that part of our Mondays and Wednesdays and our standups every day, just like a company, is that we're building product, we're building infrastructure, we're automating pieces we have quant models that we're using that help us identify intrinsic value in a specific way that is our point of view in the world. And we have a very, very specific point of view on how to think about evaluating a company versus sourcing a company. And that is what we want to build our unique value proposition around. You know, Some people call it edge. Some people call it like that's your shtick when you're talking to an entrepreneur or an LP. To us, we didn't use those words. To us, it was purely 
We can either do it the same way that other people have. When you look at a benchmark or a Sequoia, you want to aspire to be like them because they've done it. And when A16Z did it, they did it. But what was interesting is that when they did it, they were different from the rest of their peers. And I think a lot of people forget that, which is the reason they were able to make marks is that they had a different approach and they had a unique value proposition that endured and then it made sense to folks. And so ours was, okay, great, like what do we know how to do the best of, which is to build companies, build growth and data science teams, and build a lot of these products from zero to one and beyond with a certain team member. And so my whole goal was like, instead of thinking about like, let's raise capital for a fund, it was like, who are the team members that we need around the table in order for us to help facilitate this? And then how do we build financial products? And it's hard. Imagine going into a room to tell an LP, like, I want to build multiple chassis around a technology firm that helps deploy capital across early, mid, and late, and crypto. You just get laughed out of the room. They say, like, that's impossible. It doesn't make any sense. You don't fit the checkbox. It was very hard for us to do. And I didn't have a brand or reputation at the time to be like some crazy person with hundreds of millions of dollars that I can just deploy into my own funds, and I'm going to prove it out. So we bootstrapped it. And the way to do that, just like when you bootstrapped a company, was that we started, again, lucky that it was happening at that time. We started with SPVs and built a brand around not the SPV, but that we were investing across early, mid, and late stage. And that if we sent a term sheet to someone, that we were going to commit our time, our concentration to that company. Those were our first set of investments. We invested in some crypto companies that are kind of well-known today. We invested in some insurance companies. And then you know, eventually Carta, what we were kind of known for immediately, very quickly. But even relativity space and the process was, can we see inflection points in these companies? Can we see a speed of growth that other people can't? And you could call us momentum investors, but we just see it super, super early. And so our whole firm was built to start identifying that. And then eventually, which is what we did very quickly, the value exchange to bring that back to the founder and build products so that they could see it. That was the first year. That was how we started the firm. And so this idea of identifying firms early, I know you went about this in a very data-driven way. How did you approach it? So we had a network. So we're privileged to know folks in the industry. And we were privileged that they already knew our capacity for helping companies grow. We were consulting, we were advising. So we basically said, okay, great. Why don't we go to those same companies that we've known for a while or ones that we had identified in the first place? go and do the same data work, present it back to them. So the value exchange. And again, today, when we do the data work, when we meet a company, just to kind of give you the scale, the sheer size of how we do it, we see like 2,000 companies that are at the top of the funnel per year, roughly, give or take. We do this analysis between, I would say at the low end, 500 times a year, at the high end, up to 800. You have 800 artifacts. These reports are like 50 to 100 pages at a minimum for a company at the early stage, right, like a Series A. And that all the way up to series B, C, D, or E, it gets even deeper and deeper. And these are modules and quantitative frameworks on how we view the whole business and all of your products and how they interact with each other. You would spend millions and millions of dollars if you were running a company to build out this infrastructure with a team specifically for your company. And so for us to come and say, hey, even if we don't invest, we'll give you a value exchange was our wedge into building those relationships. So it was less about identifying at that time. I think at that time we were more about let's take the sniper shots with companies that we know well enough that are within that range of what it would make sense for us to invest and let's deploy capital that way. While in parallel, we were raising our first fund, which is roughly around $100 million. And again, a $100 million fund, people say fund size is your strategy. We took the opposite approach. We took the approach of, look, we're very, very good at identifying product market fit. We're very good at helping to grow these when we work with them. 
So what that means is that the theory or the thesis should be that we should have a low loss ratio, right? So typical firms across early and mid would have up to, let's say, say a really, really good firm, it's 30% loss ratio. But on average, even it's, it's publicly available data, you can have up to 60% loss ratio when you can be a top 5% firm. A lot of that is like you have two, these two to three companies that will be your drivers. Our process was, why don't we find every company possible that will be a fund driver? Any company that fits the quantitative approach to product market fit, let's focus on those. And so historically, and up until this day, you know, if I fast forward four or five years since we started, our loss ratios have always been sub 5%. So I'm kind of curious to dive into, you've mentioned this quantitative approach to product market fit and these 50-page data-driven reports. What is it that you're trying to see in all this data? Growth. It's simple. How do you measure growth, growth at high velocity? What are the aspects of what growth could be built off of? What's the foundation? So when we say a quantitative approach to product market fit, we really just say, does the product work? Do customers engage? Are they using it? Is it a certain amount of integrations for open source all the way to a B2B company, to an API-driven company, to a B2C, B2B2C? It doesn't matter. Like All of these frameworks, if you really think about it, you're engaging with the customer and you're looking at the holistic view of how it interacts with each other. So some people say, I focus on marketplaces. Okay, great. Well, Technically, anything can be a marketplace depending on how you measure it. But what you're really looking for is as a business, from your software metrics down to your financial metrics when you put it together, if you have financial metrics yet, what does product market fit look like? And in order to identify a product market fit, a lot of people make up qualitative judgments. Our whole goal has been if you have thousands of companies' data sets in raw form, which is what we do, that we have a better view of the world, we have a better point of view, and we can actually benchmark. Like you can't benchmark one company at a time in your brain. You can only do it if you can put that into a system and build frameworks off of it. So since the day we started our firm, we've been ingesting data from every company that we meet. They know that because we share back their data and their format, these reports. You're walking through, is it working? 90% of the time, companies do not have product market fit. That's a really hard statement. Even companies that have raised upwards of 25, 50, 100 million dollars, Sometimes they don't have product market fit. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. There are companies that if they build a product, they will have product market fit. So like enterprise infrastructure companies sometimes where you just need to spend a lot of time building the product, but you have a framework because you have customers that are giving you a roadmap to build off of. But your typical bottoms up SaaS or consumer product or in any software product where you're trying to build something to sell from a workflow or even lending you're trying to figure out a way to get customers to engage and you want them to stay with you as long as possible, retain and be sticky. And so you can benchmark all of these things. You can benchmark how people interact in these products. That was our goal. And so when you come back with a perspective of, hey, your product is working, but you're not growing, then you can think about if I was to give you five or 10 or 15 or $25 million, what are the ways in which you can grow at high velocity? And you can look at it, you can benchmark. If someone says in their deck, I have this roadmap to grow, but you see that they're at the top 10% of that, that they don't actually need to focus on it, then you can walk that back with them and say, look, if you were to do these use of proceeds, maybe it's better for you to focus on XYZ in your organization rather than focus on the same thing that you've heard from other decks or your other allies around the table ask you to do. You can really sort of drill down. It's not always as perfect as that, but you get a very good directional idea of where they should spend their time. So when you've done all this work and you have a very good sense, probably far more than others, of what's actually happening with these products, what goes into the qualitative side of your decisions to invest? I always go back to this sort of thinking, intrinsic value. Traditional way of thinking about intrinsic value is like, what's the value of the company? I also think of it as like, what is everything that they've done to get to where they are today? 
What does that product actually do? Who are the people that built it? And so when you can see the guts of the frameworks and see how there was oscillations in the product that changes at any given time on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, you can start drilling down and asking, so like what happened during this time frame? And sometimes the answer is simple as we lost somebody and momentum went down or we messed up marketing at this date. And so these, these are the things that we learned. You start getting deeper into deeper how they think. And so I actually think you can have much more informed discussions around like, okay, well, talk to me how you built your company during this time frame. Walk me through what you are thinking about next. And so now you're watching qualitatively how they answer these questions and do you think they can be resilient or not? Now, when I say this, it's not to over-index on the qualitative aspects. It's just to see how they think. And sometimes you may not agree. I mean, there's many companies that we've invested in where they just hit the top 10 to 5% of our benchmarks that we've ever seen. I don't agree with how they think about building their product because I was a former entrepreneur, so you always think you know better. But you let them do it. It's more about just have a perspective of how they think and what they're trying to do. And a lot of them are successful. If you ask me about any of our top 12 concentrated positions where we spent upwards of a billion dollars just in like a very concentrated way, there's probably 20 to 30% of the companies I say, I think they could do it better. They could do it faster. All I can tell them is, hey, look, I'm measuring what you're doing. I'm doing the same thing I've done for 20 years in my past with my team. And I'm giving you a perspective on how you should think. It's up to you to execute from here. When it goes into making the decisions on your portfolio, are you then primarily focused on those quantitative metrics? Earlier, less so. Later, more so. And the reason I say that is if you look at a traditional approach to investing, where do you have valuations that are the highest or inflated? It's really, really early at the seed stage. You have a, a maybe a product, a team or an idea, maybe you have a demo, but you're mainly going off of a narrative that people get excited about. And so people bid that and that's the market price that you pay. So it becomes very high. At the really, really late stage where you have more data, it becomes much more obvious then you have inflated valuations again, right? Because there's enough people that do the same thing, the same measurements. It's usually lagging financial metrics. And then you bid it up, you pay the market price. So we live everywhere in between. I wouldn't call it the gray, but all the areas where there are aspects of identifying product market fit and growth at high velocity that other people might not be seeing. I talk a lot about this internally. We don't do too many podcasts anymore, but you know, as we build out these frameworks, it's more about how do we build these quantitative frameworks to think about intrinsic value versus option value. And then within the option value, what's the extrinsic value and how to think about what that premium may or may not look like at any given time. And how should we think about it over a three, five or 10 year horizon? But you have to build frameworks for that so you can help answer those questions. So once you've dove into that and you feel like you have a pretty good sense that you're interested in working with a company, how do you find the deal dynamics around that relative to a very competitive world for capital? So the reason I said that we operate within these zones, right? So between a plethora of data and the absence of data where the evaluations are extreme, you'd be surprised that there's not a lot of folks that come to the table at the same pace and come to conviction at the same pace that we do in that middle ground. And the reason why that's the case is that it's a traditional approach, as I'd mentioned, right? You have a tribunal, those folks are getting their data room ready. The speed at which we move is pretty, I'm quite proud of that we were able to do it. There were some days that I was skeptical that we would actually get there. But if I met a company today, like you, you pitched to me today, and I liked the overall directionality of what you had mentioned about your company, I'd say, look, I really like this and I want to do our work. 
And so here's our process. You give us a raw data dump, we'll ingest that, we'll build out a report and we'll send it to you. And that'll be the beginning of our discussion. Now, what happens is that the moment they give us that raw data dump, which is easier than building out a data room, right? Like I'm not looking at a data room. I don't look at their deck. I don't care about any of them. The moment I get it, on average, if we prioritize it, let's call it a P0 at the firm, it's 20 minutes to get a 50 to 100 page report. That's super, super fast. In their minds as a founder, they think that you've spent all your time on it. And we have. We spent all of our time building out frameworks to get to that place so that we can read that company. But it allows you to do no matter what industry it's in. So energy or infrastructure or healthcare, like it doesn't matter for us. Like we don't have these top down frameworks like we need to invest in a certain sector. If we see a good company, no matter what it's in, we start digging in as fast as possible. And the frameworks help us do that quickly. So what it allows you to do is either weed that company out very quickly, give that feedback. Again, this value exchange is extremely high. If I'm giving you a 50 to 100 page report and I'm passing on you, I'm passing on you with a 50 to 100 page report. No one does that. If I think about having a conversation with you and say, here's the way in which I think about your company, your building relationship, you have that artifact again. And then if I really want to partner with you, you have something to work off of. I'm now digging into the business, getting context faster than anyone else. Any of my team members and partners around the table are doing the same thing. And we're able to get up to speed quickly. Now, the other piece is that all of my partners around the table are getting up to speed at the exact same time as me. I don't have to bring my partners along and convince them. They see all of the same basic frameworks that I'm seeing. And we're now going back and forth, just like we were at a company building our products, going back and forth on like, what about this? What about this? Should we ask that? So what happens is that when this entrepreneur is having an experience with us, we're not always perfect, but this is the aspiration, is that every partner they talk to, they do not have to start the story from scratch. They are starting the story from all the data that we've already gathered till that point. And so that means that every person is up to speed. So an entrepreneur walking through the door or a founding team or a management team, no matter how big this company is, you can talk to 16 people. They all come away with, wow, those guys really know our company. And we do and we don't. We know the guts of how their company works, but we're still getting up to speed of what, what the macro environment may look like for that company, what the nuances of how that product works. We're still getting up to speed on that, but we have a framework to work off of. Once you're invested, how do you go about helping the companies? It's a good question. I think we're getting better at this. Our whole approach has been, if we have better context into the company, we can be better stewards and conciliaries around the table. So that could be strategic, it could be product. It could be helping them to build out their growth and data science team if they need that, or their marketing team, whatever it might be, because we have those frameworks. The most privileged position that you can be in is to be a pure conciliary and strategic. And I think that's the goal of where we try to take our companies. The earlier we invest, the more hands-on work. The later we invest, the less. There's more governance. But the much more later the company becomes in their life cycle, let's call it 5, 10, 15 billion these days that you see for a lot of our companies, they actually need a lot more help. So what's funny is our earliest companies need a lot of help and our latest companies need a lot of help. And the reason why that's the case is that they're looking at their narrative from there. What are the data points that I need to see, I need to think through, that I need to build around to speak to the capital markets that are these late stage investors or I'm going public And we do the exact same work. We build out the framework, we show them what that looks like, and then we work with them. I don't think we do this perfect. I think we have enough folks around the table where it's value add for our companies and that's the feedback we get. We'll just continue to get better there. But that's how we help. Now, a big part of this is, again, we're stewards of capital. We're deciding how we're going to reinvest or deploy capital into these companies. And so when you have more and more asymmetric information, you have more and more data, and I think this is key. We don't rely on the last board meeting didn't feel good, so I don't want to do my pro rata, or I didn't have a good conversation with the founder. 
we look very, very purely at the metrics and say, okay, great. If we were to upsize, what do we need to see? Where do we need to concentrate our time and capital from here? And, and do we have the frameworks to continue to help the company? And so, as I mentioned before, again, rare that roughly out of the billion that we deployed, it's into like 12 companies. You're spending all your time looking at this data of the company itself. And then you go out into the marketplace in a very competitive environment for the venture capitalists to clearly, as you say, don't have that depth of understanding of what's happening on the product side of companies. What's your sense of the competitive landscape for venture when you take your lens into these companies that you do? I want to be fair. There are many venture capitalists out there that are very good and we partner with them. And that's our goal. I think our approach has always been much more Switzerland than zero sum. If there are some partners that deep dive into a company, they can move at that speed. I think it's possible. They might not be able to move the exact same speed in context as we do, but they might have enough expertise in an industry because they spend all their time there. I don't want to devalue that. But I think if you look at it on average, can they get up to speed? The answer is no. I think a lot of the wedge is, can you get up to speed with a multitude of companies across multiple stages to be able to, again, have a unique value proposition of getting in and having the conversation with the founder and having the opportunity or the privilege to invest no matter what the industry is. So the competitive landscape, I think of that way. Am I going to beat the top tier funds every time? No. Am I going to beat a specialized fund every single time? No. But are we a part of a round or beat them enough or get to a founder and impress them with the way our approach is enough for our model to work? That's what I'm looking to do. From a pure business greed level, you can say that like we do a very good job at just that and making sure that we can not be extremely sharp elbowed, I guess is the right way to put it at a certain time. But that's why we lead, we co-lead, we participate, we do secondaries to be a part of the company. And the firm is predicated on understanding a company and its life cycle of product market fit, no matter if they're early, mid and late. And we use these frameworks. And so then we have a financial product to invest, right? So across my three funds, my co-investments, we have a program called First Look. All of these are made to be able to size up and invest in an opportunity, no matter where we may see it. I'm curious when the success rates that you've had, maybe it's starting from the data are so high, how you think about signaling effects that that creates and the potential for just competition of people understand that you're interested and involved, that you just may have differential information over other people and be willing to bid up prices as a result? I think you have to have enough of the market to believe you have a unique value proposition. I think there's a few folks that think that way, which is tribe invested. They must have seen something that we don't or they're sizing up, whatever it might be. It's hard for me to tell. I actually don't spend too much time with venture capital, so I can't say how they feel. I think what we've seen from market reactions is that when we first started, it sounded crazy. As things were working out for one or two portfolio, you kind of shake your head and say, hmm, maybe that worked and these guys are smart. And now that I think you kind of just see like company after company that we've invested in, it's not one or two drivers. It's not three or four. It's not five or 10 within four short years. It's almost 20 companies that hit the same paradigm. I think you just kind of pay attention and say, okay, great. I can't copy them. I tried, it didn't work. So what are ways in which I can partner with them? And is that investing with them, investing in them, co-investing alongside them? That's kind of what we've seen. And it depends region to region. I'd love you to walk through an example of one of the companies you invested with. And maybe it's through stages, but from the data work you did and what you saw to the deal dynamic and then your work with them afterwards. We just made public an announcement, a company called Othellus. So it's in the healthcare space. It's quite an interesting one. We are not healthcare experts. And in our latest fund, we just did three healthcare deals. 
And so if you were to ask me, am I an expert in healthcare? My answer is no. Am I an expert in the nuances of these businesses and what they build? The answer is no. But we used a couple of frameworks that we've built over time. We identified this company called Othellus really early during the seed, the series A and the series B. And we saw that they benchmarked on every heuristic. So it's a cash flow positive company. They are growing at high velocity. It's a combination of hardware and software. What the product does is that you prick your finger. It's at home. And they have a very, very specific use case. Theranos was like, I can do anything. These guys basically say like, look, the only thing that I'm going to measure is your white blood cell count. And the use cases for measuring your white blood cell count could be a good workflow for schizophrenia patients, cancer patients at different stages. And I'm going to build a hardware and software recurring business out of that. On the software side, I'm going to do workflow automation software for the doctors, the RNs, the folks that prescribe. And for the patients, I have the data and the product sitting at their home so they don't have to go into a lab, et cetera, or wait hours, especially if you're that kind of patient. It's, it's unhealthy. It's dangerous in some cases. And we've kind of seen an acceleration of these types of remote style products kick off after COVID. And so they always benchmarked at the top 5% of companies that we had ever seen, but I had no idea what they did. <laughs> right. And so we had, we had to dig into those aspects, but they're probably a really good use case where it looks like a SaaS company. They have recurring revenue. They have expansion of cohorts. They have workflow software for doctors and specialty clinics and hospital systems now. And they have a patient. They have like a, I don't want to call it double-sided market, but they have double-sided customers. And we measured that whole thing and said, hey, this looks like multiple companies that we've seen before, but they just benchmark so high. And so that was a company where we just said, we just need to be in it. I have no idea about the market. I have no idea if they're going to become large or not, but you're building a deflationary product in a high inflationary zone of regulated industry. And they have something that looks special. So we just got to do it. So we did every round. We tried to lead every round. We weren't able to, but we ended up partnering with Sequoia GC and ourselves in the rounds. And I think anytime they're going to raise money, we'll be the first ones to say we want to be a large part of it because they just hit their benchmarks. Now, when it comes to help, that one is easy. They benchmark poorly across a multitude of things when it came to sales and quota and business development and things that you can measure around like just getting the customers in. But when I say poorly, it's how they used their team. But they benchmarked really, really well on the sales process because the product just sells itself. That's a great place to be in. And so a lot of what you're trying to help them with is like, hey, guess what? You can just grow at higher velocity by just being more efficient with one of your team members. We've measured it. We can see it. And you should take your time to figure out the right way to do it. In the meantime, you're in a really good spot. And so you shouldn't stress out about it as much, but you'll need to over time. So maybe you want to spend your time in areas that are that are product-oriented or adjacent that you're thinking through. You've afforded the time and the ability to do it. That's one way. And so then you help them through that process. But that's a great example of that. It's a company that we have an extreme amount of conviction on. The framework worked. We saw it quickly. We were not experts in the space. And then we decided to get up to speed and become experts in the space over time. And and because of them, we've done two other healthcare investments where we were able to benchmark and do the exact same thing. You mentioned first look, and I know this this question for co-investors, how do you assess through a lot of potential opportunities where you don't have expertise sort of seems like it's a consistent application of that. I'd love you to talk through what that is. So the whole firm, again, is predicated on these quantitative models and approaches. So you build that and so you ask yourself, okay, great, I can build value and derive value from it. Now, imagine I can get that report, assuming our founders want it, and that's what the first look program is built on. Imagine taking that to a strategic partner or a firm or a company or advisors or individuals that have that same context. The question you will ask is, can they help 
because they have that context now more because they can see what's happening at the company and they can think through the business a lot more clearly. So a good example, actually, I'm probably making this more public than it needs to be. There's just two companies that are in the regulated space. So in crypto, we have a company called Terra is you are building an ecosystem and an economy. So these reports really matter. And the co-investors around the table could be application developers, other folks that are thinking about moving from web two to web three, what they call today, and build on top of the Terra blockchain. Another one is we have a company called Invenia, super stealth, almost make about a billion a year in revenue, 60 people, we've never heard of them, but they're completely stealth, probably hear about them by next month. And they're in a very regulated space. They work with independent system operators in the United States. They work on making the grids more efficient. So from power production to distribution to the customers, and they're a software company, but they work within a highly regulated space within the United States. It's highly regulated in Europe and Asia, et cetera. And so when you get other strategic partners, so folks that are focused on climate change initiatives, government institutions, lobby firms, et cetera, when you give them this report on how the company operates and you give them that context, they go in a new direction around, okay, what can I do to help this company with the context and the skill sets that I have? And you bridge that gap between strategic partnerships the delta closes if you can find the right type of folks. And that was the goal of the first book program, which is could we get investors of all shapes and sizes, no matter where they are, could be executives at companies, could be angel investors, it could be strategic folks at some of these Fortune 500 companies. Could you get them or their institutions to get the same context and be the same type of value add? So I mentioned those two examples, but if I was to count the revenue uptake for our whole portfolio, just through the first look program of just getting customers, it's probably over $100 million in annual revenue or ARR, depending on the company. So when you see what you do through the data of all these companies, I imagine you probably get a sense and views of what is kind of the new thing and where you're seeing growth opportunities in this ecosystem. And I'd just love to hear your sense of what you're seeing today. Yeah, this is a hard one because I actually think we are very poor at understanding markets in the future. And our whole job is to see trends that have worked over, let's call it the last eight to five to three years, we tend to think that we just don't know anything. Let's not assume. And if someone comes in with an idea and they have certain metrics, we can build our point of view of that ecosystem and that product from the bottoms up and think first principles. And our hope is once we see one company, then we should be able to benchmark that against some of their own competitors. And should we spend time on that company or another one? And how should we think about it? Luckily, We've seen so many companies in so many regions. We usually have a point of view that we can dive into pretty quickly. I wouldn't say that was the case four years ago. I think the number for us is that we have roughly about 2% of almost all of the venture-backed companies' private data sets that sit within our coffers and we benchmark off of. And the goal is to get to 10%, right? So it's a monopolistic in terms of the data sets that we can have and what we can build off of. So we're very transparent that we're doing that. We're very transparent about the value proposition. We're very transparent about our point of view with this data set, but we're extremely secretive about our process, our trade secrets, and, and how we do that. Like The output of the data sets and the reports are transparent, but our software, the way in which we do it, how we built out the infrastructure, those are our trade secrets, and we never talk about those. I'm curious, when you see as much as you do underneath all these companies, where do you see other investors consistently making mistakes? I go back to the basics that we had mentioned before. You tend to make mistakes because you're, you're using your feelings of what you think the future could look like with absence of data. So you either actually have absence of data in the opportunity or you're not looking at it. Right? So when someone pitches to you and you say, like, I just want to partner with these people, I really like them. Or where you have an excess of data, as I mentioned before, where you 
are trying to price to perfection and you're and you're looking at the macro and capital markets and trying to be a crossover investor. And I think there's some people that do that well, there's some people that don't. I think historically what you can see is that the loss ratios were pretty high for the really early stage folks, rightfully so. I'm curious how you size positions. You mentioned 12 names, a billion dollars, pretty concentrated portfolio, and you might see the data today. But of course, in a trajectory of any of these companies, the data can change going forward. So how do you go through that thought process of deploying capital? So it depends on the stage of the company. You're right. Data can change. But one thing that never changes, and we've seen that across every company, we've been a part of Uber, Facebook, Airbnb, Lyft, et cetera. The list goes on where we built a lot of these growth and data science frameworks is that their product market fit and how they interact with their customer never changes. That doesn't mean pricing doesn't change. doesn't mean the way in which you can monetize on top of that product market fit may or may not change. It just means the interactions of how you work with the customer never changes. It's almost exactly the same. And in fact, it never gets better. It gets worse. In the rare cases it gets better, you should put all your money into that company. We rarely see it that way. So when we think about pacing or portfolio construction, look, a lot of the reasons why people focus on ownership, it's a hard thing to say, is that they're just bad pickers. So if you say, I can focus on 20, I want 10, 15, 20% ownership in this company, it's because they believe that if they make failure somewhere else, we need this company to at least return the fund and get to a, a higher multiple. If you don't have that issue, if you are doing a reasonable job about thinking about what your loss ratio will look like, then you can focus on your mid-tier to high-tier companies and say, okay, great, should I just concentrate? If on average, let's just say I have a $100 million fund, we had, I think it was roughly 15 companies, but probably concentrated to about seven. Fund two, same thing, it's about 12 companies. And you're not as ownership sensitive. So an example I would give you is that like someone says they want to raise that 600 million post and we came in with an entry point of 450. Do we really care about coming in at 600 million posts if we think and we've seen from a quantitative approach that this company is going to continue to grow in high velocity and we think it's going to be a three, five or 10 X from here over a certain time frame? Again, pure metrics, not valuation. Are we willing to make that bet? And the answer is more often yes than no. And so we'll be less ownership sensitive to the companies that we invest in. So when you think about portfolio construction, we think of it that way. Is this another company that's going to add to the value of returning to the fund with a lower loss ratio rate? And will they sort of hit these metrics that we think they will? And, and then we'll let the market decide at a certain point. And then hopefully we'll be good stewards of it with possibility of secondaries, et cetera. But again, we're investing with a 10-year horizon. Those are the timeline of our funds. It's usually 10 plus 2 plus 2. So that's a long time, up to 14 years that you're managing a portfolio. So you are partnering with these companies, you're working hard for them, concentrating your time and capital, and that's how we think we can do our best job. How do you think about balancing all this information you're able to gather for your own, as you said, kind of internal use in deploying capital versus the broader potential to make companies a lot better? Analysis paralysis. You get used to very good companies, you get spoiled, and you want all your companies to do the same thing. It's very hard. When you're going back in investing in an early stage company it's going back to teaching your kids how to crawl walk and run you're going back to kindergarten the same things are happening <laughs> so you have to be willing to do it you have to be able to spend your time with these companies and there's a set of us on the team my partners were 38 people so we keep a low key but we're extremely large across all of these asset classes early mid and late and we have a set of partners that are really good for each of those stages that love being with the founders really early getting their hands dirty there's some that want to be more passive and figure out how to be more governance and public markets related. There's some folks that are a little more breathy. And so if we can, we trade. We'll trade spots sometimes to say like, this company's now at a stage where we think this is the right person or vice versa. I'll come in at different stages or I'll let go. I think a part of it is we don't care about board seats, at least again, aspirationally. We have, some of us have a ton, some of us have none. 
And the goal there is, does it make sense for us to have an entry point into the company from a relationship perspective to start value add? I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's a part of the journey. And it's what we get excited about. All right, Arjun, before I let you go and ask you a couple of closing questions, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I grew up playing video games. So I play that with my son. That's probably like the number one de facto thing I go to. For me, it's a little bit of meditation. Starcraft 2 is something that I play or I try to at a higher frequency with my son. I play Roblox and Fortnite, and I'm not very good at it. So, I'll admit. So, so I guess I'm getting to the old stage. I shoot guns. It's a passion of mine, not because I'm some sort of a freedom person that like guns are like necessary for defense, but I'm really impressed with the way they're built. I'd spent a lot of my time thinking about like mechanical engineering when I was younger. I tried to do it. And so just the process of honing in on that craft for better or for worse. And I'd say lastly, and I've only recently gotten into it, and it might be a California thing, is just my veggie patch. I feel like it's my family. What's your most important daily habit? So like while we're talking here, I'm drawing and I'm writing stuff on a piece of paper. You can have back-to-back meetings. You're context switching. You're going from thing to thing. Uh, you know, Part of what I like to focus on is like what are the dreams and North Star that I have for the firm? And so I try to write down all of these things on a piece of paper. I guess it helps clarify my mind. And it's not something I get to do as often as I used to. But if you were to look at my desk right now, it looked like a madman is just like writing a bunch of stuff down and nothing makes sense. But it's a part of me to synthesize everything that I'm thinking through and how to prioritize my day and time. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? I'm an entrepreneur. And so from the moment I started building companies, regression to the mean is just hard to swallow, right? Like when someone's not working hard enough and we're not putting in their weight for their title or what they do and the incentives are not aligned. It's really hard for me to swallow that. And I think part of what I do and I work on is to like forgive pieces of that. But that's probably something that I try to work on and try to forgive. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? Just not doing the work, right? Like we just, again, we regress to the mean. We make quick judgments. I mean, someone made a statement or they didn't present well or they don't have the background. When I hear those words from my team members, I just think back to like, A, do we do the work? <laughs> B, do we have the data set to be able to say that? Are they at the bottom threshold? And vice versa, right? Like we really like this company because of the way in which they presented it. To me, that's a, it's, again, it's hard to swallow from the beginning. And part of this also is just my own story. Maybe I haven't even been good articulating on this podcast, but my companies, I was never able to articulate it, but the data was extremely clear that we were winning and it was working and we were scaling at high velocity. And my hope was that people would see through the surface level and say like, okay, this works and this is good. The culture of the way in which this company is being built is built that way, right? So I, I tend to do more writing than talking. And then when I do talking, I have to kind of slow down to think about how to articulate the hundreds of things that are in my mind. And so when I see my colleagues do the same thing or the same mistakes that I might have made without the frameworks, then it's an area that I think we can all improve on. And it's a focus of our firm. Given it's the ethos of what we do, it's an area that like we have to make sure that doesn't happen. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So I'll start off with my father. Again, I watched him succeed. I watched him fail. I watched him succeed. I watched him fail. And then I watched him continue to try again and again and again in areas that he wasn't an expert in. So he was in network gigabit switch stack. He went to security from the startup ecosystem. He went to the medical industry and started building out uh, ultrasound devices. And he started selling it in India and China. Like he just tried things that he felt were interesting and he started going in deep. It didn't mean that it always worked. It just means that he continued to try. And then he would use those collections of experiences and work on the next thing. And now he's like a real estate developer in his 70s. Like this is passion. It's one house after the next. And then he wants to do bigger projects, commercial properties, et cetera. Like he, he just likes it. And so you watch that and you say, as crazy as that sounds, he enjoys it. He's doing well. 
that's kind of admirable. I wouldn't say I have like a second person that I would say embodies like my biggest impact. I would say it's like a multitude of people, but you can say it's a persona. So it's a persona of other investors that are in the ecosystem that I like to learn from. And I would say they have philosophies, right? So when you look at Peter Thiel and how he thinks about using his frameworks of mimesis and philosophical perspectives of Rene Girard and how he kind of brings that into his investment philosophy. You can look at Mark at A16Z and, and what he's kind of built there and what his perspective is and has changed over time. These are all folks that we've all been close with and partnered with in the past. Mark's an LP. And I may not agree with a lot of these folks, but it's more about like, how do you take the best of what they've done and how do you interpret that and use it? The folks that I think from the persona that are the most important are the founders. So Stuart at Slack when we invested, Karn at Cover, Ryan at Bolt recently, Doquan at Terra, Henry at Carta, Sam at FTX. Like These are folks that I look at. They're building high-velocity machines. They're building out products and companies that we've never seen in our lives. These companies will probably, at some point, if they continue to grow at the pace they're growing, could be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And we are passengers on the way. We help once in a while do the dishes, be janitorial folks. I look at them and how they build out their company. And I say, okay, I aspire to do something ideally similar to what we are working on here at Tribe. And can we change the game? And can we think about it? And so they inspire me. So I, I think of them as like a persona that I can continue to learn from rather than like one individual that has impacted. They've all had massive impact. Their advisors to the fund, their LPs. I ask them for advice. It's kind of the other way around sometimes around how I'm building out my firm. What's the biggest mistake you made and what'd you learn from it? So I have a tattoo on my arm. It's 86400. So that's how many seconds you have in a day. And I think the biggest mistake... I made since I was younger was just taking too long to have the capacity to learn or care about it. How do I compound knowledge faster? I just didn't care. So when I go back and think like, why didn't I do that? And so I just wish I had sort of felt or saw the calling easier because if you start telling up how many seconds you have in a day, how long you're awake, what type of time you spend with people and the ones that are around you, it's not very long. Ted, you and I, we might meet each other or see each other or talk to each other like six or seven times for the rest of our life. And that's saying that's what I want or it's good or bad, but that's it. And so that's the relationship that we're trying to build. So you pull all those people. Again, it's maybe too quantitative. Where do you want to spend your time? How do you want to prioritize it? Who are the people that you want to do it with? And a large part of why we do what we do at Tribe is like we want to spend ideally as much of our time with each other as possible. That's great. All right, one more Arj, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think it always goes back to units of time. How much time do I have and how do I want to spend it? And then the people that are around. So my mom says, this, I think it's maybe much more Asian than it is American, but anyone who wants to spend time with you is there. Um, it's like heaven at your door. So I think we've probably taken a very similar perspective. My wife probably hates me for that or hated for me for that when I started. But an entrepreneur that comes to our house is welcome. They can stay here. Anyone who is wherever they're from, it just doesn't matter. If it's friends of the firm, if it's people that we work with, I think, I think our whole goal is to try to be as welcoming as possible. And if we can, if I can facilitate that, which I haven't done a very good job of always because you prioritize things that are not as important. If we can facilitate that with our firm and the folks that are around us, then we're generally going in the right direction. Arjun, I uh, really appreciate you spending this time with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.